This podcast is produced by Clarence Valley Community Church. If you benefit from our ministry and you would like to support us, details can be found at our website, cvcc.com.au. There you can also find out more details about our church. We're going to be going through a passage that's very dear to me. It's out of Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 to 22. And the reason it's dear to me is because I don't know when I was actually converted or born again. Uh, But as I started to read the scriptures, just like consume them, um, this was the first scripture or verse 20 in particular that I memorized uh, for myself. Um, Obviously, you memorize other verses just subliminally like John 3.16. Some of us know that not directly memorizing something, but this uh, has a special place in my heart. Uh, I don't even think I knew what it meant, but I, yeah, I just remember memorizing it. And so, yeah, it's wonderful. So I encourage you guys to memorize scripture. It's a really good thing. Uh, but let's, uh, let's get into our text today. So it comes out of Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 to 21. I'm reading out of the ESV. Um, hear now the word of the Lord. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I'll just pray uh, before we begin. Uh, Lord God, our Father, just, Lord, I pray that you would help me um, just to deliver your words, uh, speak the very words of God. Help me do it. That is helpful, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, this, this particular passage has a lot of rabbit holes that you could quite easily go down. So to avoid that, I'm just going to give you a bit of a context. So if you've got your Bible, it would be helpful for you to kind of move along with me. Because Galatians is like a really interesting book of the Bible. Because in the first chapter, well, part, part of the first chapter, Paul is explaining or giving, he's recounting what happens after his conversion. So if you don't know what happens to Paul um, when he was converted, go to Acts chapter 9 later on in your own reading time. That's the, you know, the time where Paul was converted. Uh, but he explains what happens after that. Um, so he says in verse 17, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase here. He says, you know, I went away to Arabia and then returned to Damascus. And then after three years, I went and saw Peter. So it, was, it took three years for him to even meet an apostle. And then he met Peter, and then 14 years later, he actually met the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem. So this was the first time that he'd ever met the apostles. And verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4 says, Yet 
Because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So at Jerusalem there were secret brothers that were coming into the church and trying to spy out the freedom. And then right before the text that we're going to go through, it's a really interesting account. Paul opposes Peter, the rock of the church, the so-called rock. Obviously, Jesus is the rock. But he says this, verse 11, But when Peter, or Cephas, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul speaking. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So, the context of this this whole... uh, chapter really is is Paul's address to Peter, okay? So, when it says, we ourselves, we means us Jewish Christians. It's us Jewish Christians, uh, Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So, we, meaning us Jews, us Jewish Christians, are not like the Gentile sinners who don't have the covenants, they don't have the law, they don't have the prophets, Remember, Dan preached a couple of weeks ago about the dividing wall of hostility. These Gentiles, they didn't know God, right? If you wanted to know God in the Old Testament, you would have to actually become uh, a God-fearer. You'd have to become like part of Israel, right? So he's like, we're not like these, these, uh, these, these, Jewish, uh, sorry, these Gentile sinners. And, and so what's really interesting, but then he says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So what these Jewish Christians were doing is they were holding the law in one hand and they were holding Christ in the other. They were trying to, they were have, trying to have their cake and eat it too, so to speak, right? There is a place for the law in the Christian life and we're going to talk about that pretty soon. But they were trying to hold fast. Yes, we, we acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah, but we want to keep the law as a means of our right standing before God. And Paul's like, I'll have none of it. You're trying to take away from what the Gentiles have, and that's justification by faith in Christ. Now, most of us in this room, probably all of us would know what the word justified means. But I think it's a really good thing to be reminded what the word justified means, even if you've been a Christian for 30, 40 years, to be reminded of this glorious truth is, is wonderful. So, to illustrate this, I'm going to give you a bit of an insight, Courtney doesn't know I'm going to say this, into what it's like being married to me, just really quickly. Um, okay, so most of you who know me know that I can be absent-minded at times, okay, at times, Courtney's like, at times. <laughs> uh, and so this manifested itself kind of uh, a week and a half ago. My parents were over and then our friends were over. We had like people in and out of our house all weekend. Anyway, I lost our car key. Okay, I lost our RAV4 car key. Now, before, before I you know, go into 
the details. I was really tired. Uh, we stayed up very late because these friends of ours like board games. It was, yeah, they stayed up so late. I also, we have two kids and Ruth is particularly difficult sometimes. So we have to keep her awake in the car if we want her to get to sleep. Uh, but Seth can sleep in the car, so we had to keep him asleep while trying to keep her awake, and she's quite noisy. Anyway, I was feeling a bit rushed, and then the worst part about the key is that it, we didn't have like a key ring on it, right? So it didn't jingle in my pocket, there was no lanyard on it, it was like a rogue key, and so easily falling out of your pocket. You see what I was doing there? Yeah, I was justifying my loss of the key to you, right? So what, so mainly to Courtney, of course, I'm justifying it to Courtney, but I'm also justifying it to you guys. And what I wanted to do, what I want you to think is, yes, Micah, the loss of the key was justified. I want you to put me in the right. I want to be right in your eyes. And, and when it comes to the Bible, um, we have an audience of one, God, okay? We don't care what men think. We don't care what people think because ultimately, Jesus says we're going to stand before God and give an account for everything, the life lived, right? God is ready to judge the living and the dead. So we stand before God and we're totally at His mercy. And the word to be justified, it's actually kind of a legal term, okay? It's a legal term. So I want you to imagine sort of like a divine courtroom, so to speak. Okay? And you're on trial. For what? Your sin. Further on in Galatians, it says that Scripture imprisons everybody under sin. I don't, can't remember the exact verse, but it also says, you know, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So we have to stand before God and give an account. Now, in order to be justified before God, right now, you have to have something. And there's only one way in which God will justify anybody. And it's in those five glorious English words that we read. Four, sorry. By faith in Christ. Or Jesus Christ, that's what I was thinking. Or through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can be justified before God. Made right or declared righteous. So God declares you righteous on the basis of the life lived by Jesus Christ. It's, it's as if Jesus lives a perfect life and God goes, because you believed in my son, I'm going to take his perfect record and credit it to your account because you believed. So what that does to someone is you're completely at the mercy of the one who declared you righteous. We can't boast in the fact that we've been justified. It's a free gift. And it's one of the most glorious truths in, in all of Scripture. And the Heidelberg Catechism, um, I don't know if we have it up, so I'll just read it. it. It answers the question, how are you righteous before God? And it is, there's some big words in here, but just track along with me if you, if you will. It says this, Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, in spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me, that I, have that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of them, and that I am still ever prone to all that is evil, nevertheless, God, without any merit 
of my own, out of pure grace, grants me the benefits of the perfect expiation of Christ, imputing or crediting to me His righteousness and holiness, as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, having fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me. If only I accept such favour with a trusting heart. Martin Luther called this alien righteousness, a righteousness that is foreign to us, right? We don't, it's, it's apart from us. We don't have it. So it's only in Christ that we have a righteousness before God. It's completely separate from us. And the reason why every single person in this room is not a Roman Catholic, and this is not a Roman Catholic parish, is pretty much not only because of this doctrine, but central to the split between Roman Catholics and Protestants is this idea that you can't be made righteous before God by believing in Jesus Christ and being baptised and taking the sacrament and through the church and most of all, most clearest in Scripture and by any works or works of the law in this case but it applies to all any works, nothing will give you a right standing before God except by faith in Jesus Christ. Second, uh, I just want to explain what the works of the law are because that's kind of important as well to understanding what the text a little bit. Uh, quite frustratingly, sometimes Paul uses the word law quite broadly. So sometimes you don't know if he's referring to the Ten Commandments, if you, don't, you don't know if he's referring to all the 613, someone calculated laws of the Old Testament, or the first five books of the Old Testament, Math, uh, not Matthew, Mark, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, called the Torah in Jewish, or it's uh, the Pentateuch in Greek. Okay? Uh, and it's pretty clear in this text that he's referring to every commandment that God gave to Israel through Moses. So the 613 commandments. None of those, keeping those commandments, will justify you before God. None of the ceremonial, the civil, or the moral laws. Examples of that would be Sabbath keeping. It's not going to justify you before God. The sacrificial system. Ritual purity, sexual purity, and or even uh, helping... Uh, your enemy's ox from falling astray and making sure you put it on the right path. None of that's going to justify you before God. Keeping the law does not make you righteous before God. I love this scripture. John chapter 6. He said, some people coming up, come up and ask Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Does anyone know our response to that? Do you remember? I love this. This is the work of God that you believe in whom He has sent. I love that hymn, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. There's a line that says, This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of of Jesus. That's it. Some people like to go through the back door. They like to go another way 
But God has given only one way. And if we stand before God with anything else, it's a waste of time. Some people want to get to the pearly gates through their, their own work, self-salvation, but it's only through the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. And this is what's I was reminded as I was writing this of that scripture in 1 Corinthians. It says, the word of the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing. Because the cross, you think about being saved through a man on a cross. It's not the normal way in which you would expect God to justify the ungodly and the sinner. But this is the way God appointed. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there is only one way to be made righteous. And I, I would just, I'm trying to stress that point, as you can tell. But to go back to our text, okay, those are the terms that have been defied. And we're going to saw through the next three verses because um, they're, they're quite easy to explain. Anyway, it says, verse 17, If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ also a servant of sin? Certainly not. When I first read this, I was a little bit confused, but it's actually really simple. What Paul is doing here is he's showing how illogical and absurd their, uh, the way that they think is. Basically, he's saying, uh, was Christ a servant of sin? No, obviously not. Right? So, if you do as Christ commanded, which is eat with Gentiles, well, he's, he commanded that through a vision in Acts chapter 10, and associate with sinners, associate with Gentiles, then obviously you're not going to be condemned as a servant of sin because Christ himself did that, did that and commanded it. And so who cares if we too were found to be sinners by other Jews because Christ is not a servant of sin, so why should we care? So he's showing how stupid the argument is, to, to be very frank with you. Um, and then verse 18, it says, For I, if I rebuild what I tore down... I prove myself to be a transgressor. What was tore down? What was tore down? Yeah, yeah, the temple, but also the dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew and Gentile. Okay, there was a separation between Jew and Gentile before. And that was torn down by Jesus and the apostles. Right? No distinction anymore. Jew, Gentile, male, female, all the one in Christ Jesus, torn down. And then he's saying, if I rebuild that again and say, no, 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 don't eat with Gentiles, I prove all along that the fact that I tore it down was actually a transgression and that we should be going back to the law because the law says don't associate with sinners. Basically, I don't actually go check that for yourself, uh, but I think there's definitely some advice given. I don't know if it says it in that exact way. Uh, forgive my ignorance there. Verse 19 says this, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Now, for being honest with you, I'm not exactly settled on how... It's a strange, it's strange wording. Like, through the law, I died to the law. I'm not exactly sure how Paul, uh, through the law, died to the law. Uh, I have some ideas, but I'm not willing to take... 10 minutes to explain my conundrum here because it's really a moot point because the point is that he died to the law. Paul died to the law. Now, since we die to the law, it's important to kind of think about 
does that mean there is no place for the law then? And this is a really big topic, okay? Because I have friends, and maybe it's the circles that I grew up in, perhaps none of you, but they'll say, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Now, that is very true. That statement is very true. And I just want to validate the statement. But often what lurks beneath that statement is a negative view of God's law and it's very one-sided and shallow because there is a place for the law of God and actually in Romans 3.31, it says this, Paul says this, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We uphold the law. So, we die to the law and we uphold the law. What does that mean? It's really simple, actually. It's really simple. What it means is, we die to the law as a means of a right standing before God, but not as a way of living out the Christian life in obedience. Christ has innumerable commands to His disciples. The apostles have tons of commands and they're called kind of the law of Christ or the law of liberty. It's not as if we have no law anymore, but as a way of being right before God, there is no law. And so we died to the law like Paul, he says, I die, but we do too as a way of being right before God. And so Christians will argue the fine points of this and I really don't want to get caught up in you know, the moral law, the law of liberty, the law of Christ. So, but it's important that obedience to the law does not justify you, but it marks the justified. Okay, it marks those who are justified. If you keep the law of God, it, it's proof to those around you, really, that you are justified. It's kind of the only way we know if someone's justified or someone's a Christian, right, is by their life. It's the only evidence that God gives, really, for us to look at their fruit, Okay, so it is important still the law. And now the, the verse that, um, that sort of really resonates with me, uh, verse 20, I'll read along, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment uh, the Golgotha Hill uh, or Calvary, where the three crosses are, right? You've got that typical Easter photo and you've got Jesus in the middle and you've got the two crosses. So, in the word crucified with, the other place that that appears in the New Testament is when it describes in Luke, Jesus is being crucified with two thieves, okay? That's the other place. So, it's this idea that we're crucified with Christ so I want you to imagine for a moment that we're on the middle cross, we're not dying an atoning death for sinners, we're not, we're not bearing the wrath of God or anything, but we're on the middle cross and we're dying to sin and to the law. We're dying to sin and we're dying to the law because that's what we are. We are dead to sin, dead to the law, and alive to Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means, does that mean like we, we can sin? We, like we continue to sin, sorry? Well, yes, but it means we've died to sin 
in the sense that it has no power over us anymore. Christ has defeated it. Yes, we still sin, but and if we die to the law, does that mean we don't keep the law anymore? No. It just means it's not as a form of righteousness for us. But we've died to sin and we've died to the law. That's really important. It means that in Christ we are no longer under its rule and power, sin's rule and power. And then it says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is born-again language here. This is like John 3. And I, I, would, I would be confident to say, unless you have been crucified with Christ, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Look at what he's saying. He says, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, but it's Christ who lives in me. Okay, it's born-again language. We think about old life gone away, old ways have passed, the new has come. We're new creations in Christ. And now, raised with Christ, we are new creations. And it, it really, I've meditated a lot on this verse, uh, the final part. It says, uh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's like Paul's just worshipping God. Like he's talking about the law, he's talking about all this stuff and he's just like, you know what? This Christ, he loves, he loved me. And what's interesting is it uses the past tense there. Now, where I grow up, I, I, uh, where I grew up, I grew up in the church and I heard a lot of sermons about God so loved or so loved the world um, and, and so loves the world. And God does love the world, Right? Um, he, he loves us. But it's generally in the past tense. Loved. God did something. Right? God did something. He didn't just say it. He showed us His love. And that's what John 3.16 is about. There's a Greek preposition. I don't want to go into it. But basically, that so means in this way, God loved the world that He gave His only Son. It's not saying emphatically, God so loved the world, which He does so love the world, but there it is saying, in this way, and it's just again pointing to that event in history. Because, you know, when we're struggling, when we're, we're down and out, we can look to an actual event in time and place and go, God actually loves me. Not just the abstract word, He did something. God loved me and He gave Himself for me. This is it's amazing. And I'm, I'm going to wrap it up there, but what I would love for you guys to consider is what justification is. If you are not right with God, if you do not believe that you know God, that He, is not, he has not taken away your sin and paid the penalty for your sin and you are in right standing before God, that when you stand before Him one day, that He's going to say, righteous because of my Son, then it's really important that you get right with God. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Don't wait till tomorrow. You could be dead. Right now is the appointed time. So make sure that we get right with God. Think about these things seriously. And most of you, I pretty much know everyone in this room. 
Um, so it's probably okay. Uh, but I also want to just, just make sure that we know that it's not by works. And to really consider, I was doing some deep introspection here and I was going, yeah, do I really believe this? Do I believe that it's apart from my works? And just to, to search your own heart because it, it will give you freedom like no other. Let's pray. Lord God, we just uh, we magnify you and we give you all the praise because we know that we could do literally nothing. We stand before you bare, naked, alone and without Jesus Christ, we've got no one to take our place. And we just want to thank you, God, for being such a gracious and merciful God that you would die for the ungodly. And that is what we are. We contributed one thing to our salvation, our sin, that made it necessary. And we're so grateful for you, God, and thank you for making us born again, for, for us being able to be crucified with you. And I pray that we would meditate on that as the week goes by and what that means for us now that we're dead to sin and alive to Christ. Pray that you bless everyone in this room and that we would just grow in holiness together and in love for one another as we apply these things to our life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.